Killer Charm, adapted from The Murder Room by Michael Capuzzo, published by Penguin in 2010. Scott Dunn had vanished. Now, his father and his super sleuth friends had to prove he'd been murdered. They uncovered a shocking tale of manipulation and torture and a most unexpected criminal. Alarmed by the growing number of unsolved murders, a group of the world's foremost crime solvers banded together in 1990 to crack cold cases. They called themselves the Vidocq Society, after a legendary 19th century French detective, and gathered monthly in Philadelphia, where they still meet to this day. They've notched up many notable successes. This is one of them. The red light was blinking on the phone in Richard Walter's hotel room. Who wants me now, he thought. Walter had just flown in from business in London for a meeting of the Vidocq Society, but right now he was planning to go to the bar. The only five words he wanted to hear for the rest of the night were, What will it be, sir? Reluctantly, he picked up the phone. The message was from Vidocq co-founder Bill Fleischer, welcoming him to town and asking a favour. Richard, would you call Jim Dunn? He's a bereaved father whose son disappeared a year ago in West Texas. The cops haven't made any progress. This case has your name on it. With a groan, Walter dialed the number Fleischer had left. My sense of duty is inviolable. It's damn annoying at times. Duty told him to let the phone ring five times, no more. On the third ring, Jim Dunn picked up. Walter introduced himself. I'm a psychologist, Mr Dunn, whose experience lies in profiling killers. From the little Bill Fleischer has told me, I suspect my skills might be of use to you. At eight o'clock the next morning, Richard Walter and Jim Dunn sat in Walter's hotel room, enveloped in cigarette smoke. The profiler sat erect in a Queen Anne chair, a picture of stillness with his eyes closed. Dunn, a tall man with a craggy face, faced him on a matching chair. On the table between them, Dunn had piled notebooks, tapes and news clippings. Walter opened his eyes and arched his brow. It sounds like you're hurting, Jim, he said. How may I help you? Walter had spotted Dunn in the lobby at 20 paces. The man's elegant suit, shiny brogues and silver hair fitted the mature, prosperous gentleman of the telephone call the night before. Yet it was the sadness of the eyes that made Walter certain. Now Dunn explained that he had been working late one Sunday evening at his home in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, when the phone rang. He'd thought, it must be Scott. The Sunday calls from his 24-year-old son were a father's joy. After some troubled years, Scott had moved to Lubbock, Texas, where his father had grown up. Scott wanted to make a new life for himself and had recently told his dad that at Thanksgiving he'd be bringing home a young woman named Jessica, a bright, lovely Mississippi State University student who would soon be his fiancée. But the flat, cold voice on the line was someone Dunn had never heard of. Her name was Leisha Hamilton, and she was Scott's live-in girlfriend, she said. She'd found Dunn's name on a telephone bill. Scott had been missing for four days and she was concerned. Dunn was confused. The only girl Scott ever told me about was Jessica. Scott had suddenly moved out, Leisha said. He'd taken all his clothes and even the bed they shared was gone. The only thing he'd left was his car still parked at the office. When Dunn heard that, he felt a chill. I knew then something was really wrong, Dunn told the profiler. Scott would never go anywhere without his car. When Leisha called again, Dunn recorded her. 
Now Walter asked to hear the tape. She sounds so cold, Dunn said, as the atonal voice filled the room. I've never heard anything like it. At first, the police regarded Scott's disappearance as a missing persons case, but when Scott hadn't turned up after two weeks, Dunn flew to Lubbock to push the investigation. The police had run a luminol test in Scott's and Leisha's emptied bedroom. Luminol detects blood, even as diluted to one part per million. When the chemical is sprayed on the walls in darkness, any trace of blood, even after rigorous cleaning, would interact with it and glow with a blue luminescence for 30 seconds. The walls and ceiling glowed as if they had been painted blue. Huge waves and spikes of blood splashed halfway up the wall. DNA tests showed it was Scott's. Dunn's voice broke as he showed Walter the test photos. Scott had died in that room, Dunn was convinced. Police too believed they had a murder on their hands, but they couldn't find a body. They'd combed the prairie with cadaver dogs and helicopters, turned over half the city dump, even brought in psychics. In Texas, the state can't successfully bring murder charges without a body or body part, Dunn recalls the district attorney saying. You don't have a case. The police thought Leisha wasn't completely forthcoming, but they believed she was scared and they hoped to coax her into greater trust. Dunn took her out to dinner, trying to form an alliance. After that, Leisha kept calling. One day she'd say she loved Scott and was doing all she could to find him. The next day, she'd sound vague and distant, hinting that she might know where Scott's body was but that Dunn would never find him. She also said that since she'd been the closest person to Scott, it was only fair that she get his car. She kept pressing Dunn to give her the keys. Walter, sitting in the Queen Anne chair, had said nothing for almost three hours as Dunn talked. Dunn's voice cracked. Well, Mr Walter, what do you think I should do? Walter stubbed out his cigarette and stared hard at Dunn. Jim, aren't you tired of being the grieving father? Dunn's mouth fell open. I thought that was what I was supposed to be, he replied. Walter shook his head. His jaw was clenched. No, you're supposed to be angry. That woman murdered your son. Let's go get her. Super Sleuth Call to Shed Light on Bizarre Disappearance was the front-page story about Richard Walter's arrival in Lubbock. At eight o'clock in the morning, on a December day in 1992, Walter sat down with a police corporal, a sergeant and a detective. Walter got right to his point. They should go to the district attorney, Travis Ware, and press for murder charges against Leisha Hamilton and her former neighbour Tim Smith, a man Walter believed had been her lover and accomplice. Corporal George White and Sergeant Randy Maguire took a long look at the profiler. The case had been a top priority for over a year. Jim Dunn was a hometown boy, a distinguished alumnus of Texas Tech. His college roommate W.R. Collier, now president of a Lubbock bank, was still his best friend. There was great public interest in the case, and the police had invested thousands of man-hours. They wanted nothing more than to solve it, but while they liked Walter, and he them... They weren't convinced the slender, charming Leisha had orchestrated a cold-blooded murder, and they were stymied by the absence of a body and a motive. Walter tried to convince them. Sometimes, he said, what's missing is more important than what's present. He held up the photograph of bloodstains revealed by Luminol. The careful clean-up speaks to an elaborate plot. The murder was purposeful, not recreational. At the word recreational, eyebrows rose and he explained, 
A serial killer Ted Bundy type who chose a random victim for sadistic pleasure would have left a far messier, more symbolic crime scene. So the killers knew Scott. He let that sink in for a moment. The carefully organised crime, clean-up and disposal of the body points to a power-assertive or PA killer, he went on. It's a type I've dealt with many, many times. The killing is all about power. Incapacitate, restrain, torture, kill, throw away. I win, you lose kind of power. He asked them to examine Scott and Leisha's relationship. Scott was a ladies' man, handsome, bright and cocky. Leisha, 29, was also very bright, sexy, flippant and manipulative. Leisha had a long list of lovers, husbands, one-night stands, wanted and unwanted children, Walter continued. She had five children by different fathers. His voice took on a sarcastic edge. She told police she only loved the ones conceived in love. He paused to let that take root. Leisha would have seen Scott as a challenging conquest and a link to his father's wealth. But like a lot of 24-year-old men, Scott had found someone to take to bed, not home to meet mum and dad. When he met a decent girl, it was time to dump Leisha Hamilton. The day Jessica called and Leisha answered the phone, Scott's fate was sealed, Walter speculated. If anything is going to get you killed, it's to reject the psychopath and say, I'm better than you are. Scott had worked at a stereo shop, and Walter believed the sequence of events leading to his murder began with a raucous Monday night party at his boss's house. Scott arrived with a tall, gorgeous blonde, who turned out to be a transvestite. According to Leisha, Scott had become seriously ill with the flu during the party, a claim that Walter found suspicious. Scott had slept on the sofa at the party house, and the next evening, Leisha turned up and took him home. A neighbour saw Leisha leading the weak, stumbling young man into the apartment. Leisha said she'd gone out on Wednesday to get soup and a thermometer. When a colleague arrived the next morning to pick Scott up for work, the blinds were drawn and nobody answered the door. Scott was never seen again. Walter believed that it had been a simple enough matter for Leisha to call in neighbour Tim Smith to help with the murder. Smith had flooded her with fawning love letters that included the words... If only Scott wasn't around, we could be together. Duct tape, used to patch the blood-soaked carpet that had been cut away and replaced in the killing room, had been linked to a role in Smith's apartment. This is a classic setup for a female PA killer, Walter said. She'll enlist trickery to disable a stronger male and or acquire a sympathetic and weak accomplice. Leisha did both. Calling attention to herself was Leisha's big mistake, Walter said. How did we find out about the crime? Leisha calls Jim Dunn. She knows Jim's going to look for Scott. She's already done in the son, now she wants to do in the father too. She tried to be coquettish with the detectives, calling them all the time with new information, pretending to be afraid of Tim Smith. She moved in with Smith so she could continue to set up her dupe to take the fall. The need for stimulation is quite insatiable for a psychopath, the ego gratification to prove they're smarter than anyone, the gotcha. Tim Smith missed work the day of the murder, Walter said, and Leisha Hamilton couldn't account for her activities that day, although her memory was extraordinary for the days around it. The murder itself was a monstrous affair, Walter continued. He believed Scott was poisoned, imprisoned, restrained and tortured for two days before his death. Detective Tal English shook his head sadly. 
The young detective was persuaded by Walter's profile of Leisha Hamilton as a psychopath, but the others still had doubts. They were Texas polite, Walter recalled. But the whole explanation involved too much conjecture for them, and they were convinced they'd get nowhere with the district attorney, Travis Ware. As Sergeant Maguire told Dunn, I have seen Ware cut people right off at the knees when he feels they don't have a strong case. Walter, however, was not to be dissuaded. He was ready to see the DA. Let's go, he said. District Attorney Travis Ware, 185 centimetres tall, dark-haired and impeccably attired, rose from his leather chair behind a huge wooden desk. Well, you've asked for this meeting, he said brusquely. What do you want? Walter snapped back. We want charges filed against Leisha Hamilton and Tim Smith in the murder of Scott Dunn. You don't have a body or a part of one, the DA said. Without either, they could not meet the standards of corpus delicti. The profiler removed his horn-rimmed glasses and glared. If you want a body, I'll give you one. It's right here in Dr Shepard's report. He dropped on the desk a slim, blue-bound report titled Forensic Pathology and Analysis of the Crime Scene in the Murder of Roger Scott Dunn. What the hell are you talking about? It's right here, Walter said. Dr Shepard's report proves that Scott Dunn was murdered. Walter had asked Detective English to have a forensic pathologist examine the crime scene to determine if enough blood had been spilled to indisputably have caused the death of a 180-centimetre-tall, 77-kilogram man. Dr Sparks Vesey, the Lubbock County pathologist, had refused the job, saying there wasn't enough information to reach a conclusion. At Walter's direction, English had sent a large package with copies of the entire case file, photographs and blood carpet samples to Walter's friend Dr Richard Shepherd, an internationally known consultant to Scotland Yard. Dick's brilliance is unsurpassed, Walter said, and he owes me a favour. As DNA testing indicated, the blood was 958,680 times more likely to originate from the offspring of James Dunn than from anyone else on earth. Dr Shepherd concluded that bloodstains in the room, one, have not resulted from a natural disease process, two, are entirely consistent with the infliction of multiple blows from a blunt instrument or instruments, three, are entirely consistent with those blows being delivered with a force of sufficient strength to cause death, four, and that a child of James Dunn has suffered severe multiple blunt trauma injuries while in the corner of the south and east aspects of this room, and these injuries resulted in the death of that individual. The report was signed, Richard Thorley Shepherd, BSC, MB, BS, FRC Path, DMJ, Senior Lecturer and Honorary Consultant in Forensic Medicine, United Medical Schools of Guy's and St Thomas's, Guy Hospital, London. The DA looked up from the report, his chin set in defiance. He said, I'm not sure what Texas law would say about this. I just happen to have that section of Texas law with me, Walter said, grinning. Ware issued a wan smile. I thought you might. Walter opened a statute book and read, interpreting as he went. In essence, Texas law says we have to have A, a body, B, part of a body, or C, a confession with corroborative evidence. We have B. We have blood. Blood is connective tissue, which is a part of the body. Ware leaned back in his chair, tenting his fingers. All right, he said. You've got a murder case. Detective English drove the unmarked police car through the breezy Texas spring morning, with Richard Walter smoking in the passenger seat. 
they pulled into the car park of The Kettle, a popular lunch spot. They were thinking takeaway, one Leisha Hamilton, to go. The tall, dark-haired waitress saw the detective and scowled. English said, Leisha, let's go outside and avoid a scene. She nodded and quietly followed him out to the car. It's time for a little chat, he said. Four months had passed since his meeting with Ware, and Walter was frustrated by the case's lack of progress. In April 1993, he returned to Lubbock, determined to sell the detectives once more on his idea that Leisha Hamilton was the primary suspect, but nobody was buying. He'd muttered under his breath, Gentlemen, you have no idea what you're dealing with, and then turned to Detective English. Young man, take me to the psychopath. They all exchanged small talk as Leisha got in the back seat. The death stare she had levelled at English in the restaurant was now gone. She was smiling, chatty, and she flipped her dark hair back off her forehead. I wish you would explain something to me, Walter said. I don't know anybody else in America who does a murder and then cleans up the crime scene afterwards. That is, unless it is done in their own home. And in this case, you're the only one who had access to that house, and you don't have an alibi. But I do have an alibi, she protested. You mean you know when he died, said Walter? Only the killer knows when he died. I know when I found out he was missing. Scott Dunn is not missing, Walter sharply interrupted. He was murdered. We've got that established, and you're a suspect. Her eyes and voice now went as flat as a prairie and stayed that way, unshakable. Then I guess I don't have an alibi. Walter appeared to be lost in contemplation, then stared balefully over his glasses. Leisha, I've noticed you seem to have a great ability to attract men. Now granted, I'm old, I'm ugly, I'm tired. But for the life of me, I can't figure out what they see in you. Can you explain it for me? A silence filled the car. She smiled awkwardly. Well, I don't know. I've got to get back to work. She opened the door and she was gone. English sat stunned. Richard, he said, am I mistaken or did you just call her a dog? Walter grinned. I thought I did. But why? Walter lit a cigarette. Leisha thinks she is smart enough to outwit everybody. What we must do is make her feel insignificant, unimportant. This will drive her crazy and she may well make a mistake. In January 1995, Walter opened a package from Detective English. Out fell a single piece of white paper on which was drawn what Walter called quite intriguing original art. It was a pencil sketch by Leisha of the murder scene, a crude, childlike drawing that documented the torture of Scott Dunn. Walter phoned English. Where'd you get this? the profiler asked. An ex-boyfriend she took up with after Scott, by the name of Carl Young. He gave it to me in a coffee shop, looking nervously over his shoulder the whole time. The drawing indicated that Leisha had chained Scott to a pallet where their bed had once been located. At the bottom of the picture was a key depicting handcuffs, a needle, a knife and a gun. Also shown were fists and a blunt instrument. This was consistent with the report of a coroner and blood spatter expert who'd determined, by the angle of three drops of blood on a far wall, that Scott had died from three lethal blows to the head. This is a classic, Walter added. She drew this to memorialise her achievement. Leisha had made dramatic changes in her life that were also classic post-murder behaviour. Few cops understood how killers used murder to stimulate personal growth. It was a very dark self-help movement. 
I'm okay, you're dead. Since murdering Scott, Leisha had dropped Tim Smith and taken up with Young, a local restaurant cook with whom she'd had a child. She had also attended nursing school while continuing to work as a waitress and graduated at the top of her class. Her success doesn't surprise me, Walter told English. I always said she was extremely intelligent, psychopathically bright and charming. But the nursing school is really quite rich. If you're accused of being a murderess, how do you cleanse yourself of all suspicion? You become a healer and dress in white. In the Lubbock County Courthouse on Friday, May 16, 1997, Richard Walter sat anxiously waiting with Jim Dunn and his wife for justice to be served at last. Judge William Shaver asked Leisha to stand to hear the jury's verdict. Wearing a conservative blue dress, Leisha appeared confident and at ease. According to testimony during the four-day trial, she had told an ex-lover, There is no way I can be convicted, because there's not a body and there's not a weapon. Jim Dunn wore his best dark suit and tie. His wife clutched Jim's hand. It was six years to the day since Scott had gone missing. At the state's table, Rusty Ladd, an assistant DA who always wore cowboy boots, nervously leant forward. The case had been a prosecutor's nightmare. The first grand jury hadn't found sufficient evidence to indict for murder. The district attorney who'd brought the case was bounced out in an election. The new DA had a conflict of interest. His old law partner had once represented Tim Smith. So the DA reached out to Ladd in another county to be special prosecutor. A new grand jury laboured over the case, and Ladd wrestled for eight months to get it to trial without a body. In a blow to the case, Walter had not been allowed to testify. Judge Shaver had ruled that a profile of an accused murderer was speculative and not worthy of his court. In the third row, Walter was still quietly fuming over the slight. The judge unfolded the paper the jury foreman had handed to him, cleared his throat and read, his voice booming. We, the jury, find from the evidence, beyond a reasonable doubt, the defendant is guilty of the offence of murder as charged in the indictment. Murmurs swept the courtroom. The Duns turned and looked at each other for a long moment, then Jim threw his arms around his wife and held on, tears streaming down his face. Walter was thrilled to see husband and wife, now his good friends, emerge from a long darkness into light. Leisha Hamilton was sentenced to 20 years in prison for the murder of Roger Scott Dunn. Tim Smith was also convicted of first-degree murder but received only a 10-year sentence. It was probated and he didn't serve time. In 2016, 21 years after his death, Scott Dunn's remains were found buried in a shallow grave just four doors down from where he was murdered. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia.